This is an interview with Brian Rush on Tuesday, September 21st, 2021, by Nick Perkel. Now, Brian, what was your first instrument? Um, my first instrument was just a 61-key Yamaha keyboard from Radio Shack. It was one of the ones with all the voices labeled at the top. Um, that's really what I spent most of my time experimenting with from junior high all the way through high school. Every time I heard a melody I really liked, I would try to learn it and emulate that sound on that keyboard. There were some god-awful results with it, too. You ever um, get yourself like a, a full piano? My parents did have a, I think what you call a half piano or upright piano, but I wasn't really able to practice on it much because it was just loud in our house. So that's why I got the keyboard was uh, to practice with headphones on. What kind of music lessons did you take with uh, private tutors, music schools, or conservatories growing up? Well, I was terrible at sports. Uh, so my parents wanted me to do something extracurricular. Uh, I think I was about 10 or 11, so they just signed me up for piano lessons, which is why I got the keyboard. So I did that on and off for about three years just at the local community center with, with a great teacher named Hope who really taught me to be deliberate and percussive and uh, time conscientious with my playing to keep it tight, uh, which is something I think a lot of keyboard players struggle with when starting out. But most of the time we just spent talking about and listening to like Elton John, Stevie Nicks, and Led Zeppelin. Then in high school, I did take one music theory class, which was really helpful organizing all the patterns you see when you're practicing songs. So I did that, and then the jazz band, which I kind of sucked at, but I just switched between piano and upright bass. Um, I did revisit music theory a few years ago at Portland Community College and noticed that my writing in general becomes much more, quote-unquote, acceptable to fit in the box of Western music theory when I take these classes. But we just need to remember that music theory, no matter what part of the world it originated in, it's just a tool. If you follow all the rules 100%, you'll end up with, like, nothing music or music also known as elevator music, you literally need to break the rules to create something worthwhile. Now, what's your stance on using a metronome? Use it or don't, and why? It just depends on the goal and vision of the project. If we're playing something that's supposed to feel really raw and organic, then a metronome is not necessary. But if the rest of the music suffers because of inconsistent tempos that should be remaining consistent, then a metronome is essential. What have you noticed about yourself as a musician that's changed in the past two years due to the pandemic? Since the pandemic began, I'm definitely much more purposeful with my time. At first, like many of us, I um, thought there would be more time to work on various projects but this ended up backfiring as there's always like a hundred songs running through my head at any given moment. So just had um, even more pieces of songs laying around than usual and had to put most of them on the back burner in order to make most of the time with bandmates to get as much done as we could outside of practice since it's just become more difficult to all be together in the same room. Now, how often are you practicing right now? 
Right now with bands, I've really only been consistently practicing with one band since the pandemic. And we aim for twice a week for about an hour and a half at a time. At home, I'm writing more than practicing. And at home, I usually aim for about an hour or two per day. But of course, this isn't always able to happen. Um, at the end of the day, when I'm relaxed or in the shower or something, it's much easier to come up with an idea. So I'll immediately try to record it before it's lost. Then it's just a matter of trying to finish the idea, which is kind of the hardest part. It's kind of that like anything you do is 10% fun slash creativity and 90% tediousness of hard work. But um, yeah, I must have like over 100 half songs and half albums started on my hard drive. This is actually one of the misconceptions people have when they see, you know, oh, he's in so many bands, blah, blah, blah. A lot of these projects were buns in the oven that, that actually happened to get finished. Projects like Dishonor, Luckdom, and Stormforger, they're not really active, and you can bet I don't remember how to play most of the material. Um, there's more coming, but it's more of when I can take the time to be in the zone. I hate forcing songs to be written. If I do actually have to go back and relearn something to play for whatever reason, like live or for a playthrough video, it usually only takes a few minutes to relearn since the muscle memory is still buried deep down in there somewhere. And also learning new, new songs usually doesn't take that long either since, you know, I generally enjoyed learning music theory and um, just always looking for ways to simplify learning music since my goal is to be a session player. Thinking about riffs and notes and numbers is really tedious to me, but you can usually break them down into some sort of like unquantifiable amorphous shapes that are easier for your brain to understand that probably only you can understand. Um, I'd also add that playing with Legos as a kid has been super helpful when it comes to learning and understanding timing in music. Could you like um, elaborate more on that? Yeah, so as a kid, you know, I always had the uh, the Mega Blocks or Legos, and you have to overlap them in certain sections. So it's like, yeah, you have a 4 by 2 next to a 4 by 2 but to keep them together, you need to straddle a 4 by 2 on top across the middle of those, and then you fill in with the 2 by 2 squares on each side, and that's sort of the, the simplest version I can think of. But it's, it's very similar to understanding where the timing of where all the notes are hit of a beat or rhythm of a melody fit on the grid of a um, like a riff or a melody line out of all the musical projects you're a part of which one do you find you're spending the most time on at this point in time lately enigmatum for sure although not for the reasons you may be thinking uh, keeping up with the social media since the release of Deconsecrate in August has been a bit of a learning curve for all of us. Um, and packing up orders and things like that also takes a lot more time than most people realize. What song has been the most satisfying for you to record since the pandemic began? Most satisfying to record has been, uh, well... It's actually a guitar cover of Valsagoth's To Dethrone the Witch Queen of Mitos Kun. Valsagoth is by far like my favorite band ever. And I've been working on learning that song note by note, fret for fret, for the past few years. Um, when I first tried to learn it, like 10 years ago, it was very daunting. But um, 
they're a highly underrated and misunderstood band. And they get lumped in with black metal all the time because they were label mates with Cradle of Filth, toured with the likes of, you know, Emperor. But they're really on their own level and unclassifiable. I would put them closer to like fantasy music, Fantasia mixed with Conan the Barbarian music mixed with thrash and heavy metal. I could go on all day about them. Personally, out of the different projects I checked out from you, I really took a liking to the Ashes of the Titans album by Luctum. How long did it take to compose the album? And how much of an influence did you have on the songwriting? I'm really happy you liked uh, Ashes of the Titans because those were musically some of the most personal songs I had ever written and um, was in a really dark place when writing them. At least tracks one, three, and six. Those were the songs I wrote for that album. The other half of Ashes of the Titans was written by my friend Ephraim. We both grew up on a lot of second wave Scandinavian and also the French LLN band. So that's where the musical wells were flowing from. Um, we were originally writing those songs for a Swedish, or I guess at the time in 2014, it would have been an international project called Nocturnal Abyss headed by vocalist Noctir. Um, I had written and recorded the instruments for his 2013 album called From the Depths of Morkvod. But after this, we we kind of both had a lot of shit going on in our lives, so it just wasn't feasible for us to continue. Anyways, Noctir had sent me links to songs he really liked, which would inspire me to write. And there are um, vestigial remnants of that process on the Luckham album. Um, eventually Nocturnal Abyss did continue and they put out another album a few years ago with a new instrumentalist. So definitely check that out if you're into Luckdom or if you're into LLN inspired black metal. What is your most cherished musical possession? That would be by far my uh, DAW, or for those of you who don't know, digital audio workstation Logic 9. I've been using it for the past 10 years now. Without it, I wouldn't be able to solidify or finish any music, period. Um, I got it like a year before Logic 10 came out, so most people use that now. But um, yeah, it's great. It's It definitely does everything you need to be compatible with other DAWs like Pro Tools or Reaper. And um, it's just like um, a huge step up for me. What are your three rarest Pacific Northwest albums in your music collection? I'm not one for rare album hunting, but I do pick up stuff I like. As far as maybe a bit rare would be um, the Devouring Serpent demo tape. It was the first release on Witch Hand Productions and limited to 50 copies, which sold out very quickly. Um, I think everything on that label, Witch Hand, does... Next would be the Oxygen Destroyer Carnotaurus split CD titled Saurian Warfare. I'm not sure how rare it is, but, you know, it was before Oxygen Destroyer really blew up. And this one made a big impression on me when it came out because it was the first time I heard either of those bands and I really liked their attitude and what they're all about. And I guess lastly, as far as rare, would be a cassette demo by a one-man pop slash dream pop slash I don't know what you call it project called Temporar. Um, hang on, I'm actually going to 
grab the tape here. Um, yeah, I got it here and I'll pop it open. So the amount of copies were limited to whatever he had available, which I think was about 35 tapes. Um, the mastermind behind this project, Temporar, is his name's Robert Waldorf. And he has a really great energy about him that's captured in these songs. And the thing is, he didn't duplicate any of these demo tapes. He just recorded the songs 35 different times. So every person who has this demo has a different version of his playing and singing. And um, it's also recorded over different tapes from bygone eras. So everyone has a different shell. Um, and yeah, the shell I'm looking at is like, from a big band recording. So yeah, I'd say those three are probably the rarest Pacific Northwest albums I have. Your favorite ghost story or urban legend from Portland, Oregon? Polybius by far. It's a supposed government experiment where they placed a super addictive arcade game called Polybius around town back in 1981. And it led to serious problems. Um, aside from being super addictive, it led to serious problems for players like seizures and even suicide. One of the rumors is that they were using it to find top shelf special ops recruits, kind of like some... Uh, like some last starfighter shit. Men in Black would occasionally check in on the games and download data about the players. I don't know if it's true or not, but I'd like to think it is. You ever come into contact or hear any uh, sort of substance on the rumor at all? Because I've heard about that and just interests me too. There's really not a lot out there. I mean, you know, I, I think it mostly came to light when someone who is a supposed engineer of the game left a blurb on a forum somewhere, but it's just impossible to verify if it's true. And of course, the the German company that supposedly designed the game, it's impossible to find anything about them. So, yeah, I, I just don't know. It's, it's really difficult to find. You know, it, it's one of those things like a lot of people, I think, know about as much as I do. But beyond that, it's really hard to find any other information. Final words. As far as, like, what I do, there's a lot more different material that most people don't know about on my SoundCloud, where you can find me at Pale Magus Productions. Even though I don't think Pale Magus Productions as an entity will be continuing in the near future. Um, also, I think there's one remaining copy of the Crimson Altar demo on my big cartel, so snag that if you can. Anything Matt Madani is a part of is great. And lastly, just keep your eye on Portland for Metal. It's bursting at the seams with material bands have been writing and recording over the course of the pandemic. And I think we're going to see a lot of cool new releases from new as well as established bands over the next few years. This has been an interview with Brian Rush on Tuesday, September 21st, 2021 by Nick Perkow.